0: and suggest future topics and guests.
1: Today, we're joined by Mario McCracken, the Chief Revenue Officer at Move Medical, where he guides the sales, marketing, and customer success efforts. Mario is also a good friend, and very happy to have him on the podcast with us today. Mario, welcome. Hey,
2: Thanks. Honored to be here. This is great.
1: We'd love to start out by having you tell us a little more about your background. How did you get to where you are now? Where'd you come from? Where do you hope you're going? (laughs) So at
2: Move Medical, where I kind of lead the sales, marketing, and customer success efforts, it's kind of an all-in-one package for helping the company align everything we do with the customer's needs. And so that's current clients, future clients, and everything in between. So that's that's my focus. And kind of how I got here was I've been in lots of different sales and marketing roles throughout my career, whether that's in finance or global commodities or high-tech software or um, financial management services or even animal feed. So lots of different industries, manufacturing, and they all kind of eventually what I learned is that no matter what you're selling, there's kind of some similarities. And that as long as you can translate those similarities, you can kind of... Th- Find a way to do
0: a good job, Mario. With first of all, welcome to to the podcast. Definitely Thanks, want to uh, talk a little bit more about about sales, and then what you just said about these skills that, in some ways, uh, are can transfer uh, across industries. But before we do that, and I and I think it's very fitting that today we are we are recording not just the audio but the video because we have that great visual of your your bookshelves behind you mm-hmm. and I'd like to ask you about reading my understanding is that you consider reading to be um, an, an essential part of, of, of your of your life and that you have some things you want to to, to share uh, with us about that I mean I, I, I I'll start off by saying that I uh, theoretically speaking, I, I, I'm sure I won't have any objections to to the to whatever you have to say regarding the importance <laughs> of reading. I maybe have uh, fallen off the wagon in, in, in years uh, in years past, but but please um, tell us about um, what you like to read, uh, what role that plays into in, in your in your life and your your professional activities, and. Why it's important, perhaps, for for some, you know, if you're speaking to to folks that perhaps don't incorporate reading into their into their lives as much as they should, what what are what are what are they missing out on?
2: Oh, that's a loaded question for sure. Um, so, reading is important to me because there's only so many mistakes that you can make in 24 hours and learn from them. So reading helps you learn faster by learning from other people's mistakes. So when you do it yourself and you get experience, it stays with you longer. And I think that's one reason why you have to read and reread so many times because it takes you longer to learn other people's lessons, but at least it's a chance to learn them because there's no way you're going to experience every single thing. And so reading just helps you experience other things. And that's fiction or nonfiction alike because how other authors portray characters in fiction, especially, it's still a thought process. It's still human or fantasy, whatever it's, it's, Per, it's, it's interaction between people and that interaction teaches you a lot about how you would react and how other people would react. So reading, I think is for, for me and the people I know who do like to read a lot, it's a game changer in how in your mm. thought process, it changes how you think about problems, which then just allows you to hopefully pursue better, better alternatives than just what's right in front of you.
0: Would you have, um, perhaps, um, an example or two of, uh, Reads that you've you've enjoyed over the years that have had that 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 effect perhaps uh, just to just to um, offer a concrete example of of how that uh, vicarious learning can 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 take place.
2: Yeah, so just recently there's a it's kind of a new series maybe been out four or five years. Jack Carr, he's an author who is a former Navy SEAL and he wrote a book, a series of books about a former Navy SEAL. So it's totally fiction, but. And the situations that this his main character is placed in aren't realistic at all for ninety nine point nine percent of the people. Mm-hmm. But you, no matter how far fetched it is, you feel you can connect with that character on some level because some part of every experience is something that you've gone through. And lots of the times, these these. In, so in, in, in my current profession, I sell complex enterprise software to really, really, really big companies. And these really, really big companies have lots of people who are doers, who go get lots of stuff done, but at the end of the day, they're not the decision maker. And in these books, this main character has to deal with a lot of those type of people who are just there to finish the job and do the assignment, even though they're not the final decision makers. And so he has to learn how to navigate through different types of people while still knowing that they're not the final decision makers. So... And I can perceive that every day in the, in the job that I have on, on my day job is every single day I'm working with those type of people. And so just putting myself in those shoes, even though it's totally different situations, it helps me take a step back and try to practice empathy, I guess you could say. But, yeah, there's that's just one example. Those, the, the Jack Carr kind of series right now has really I see a lot of parallels in what I do on a daily basis, even though I'm not a Navy SEAL. And
1: Mario, how many books do you read in a month? Oh, I know shoot. I've asked you this before.
2: <laughs> yeah, it varies, but I probably read, I don't know, just depends. But on a, a good month, it'll be eight to 12.
1: Amazing, amazing. My consumption is all audio book based. And so I remember you, I think asking a question on LinkedIn, maybe a year or two ago, and, and you said, how many books are you reading right now? You ask this kind of to your general audience, how many books are you reading right now? You said, and I count audiobooks in, in books and, sure, yeah. and you just kind of generally lamented that, uh, that reading is, is becoming a lost art that, you know, people sitting and thinking deeply, um, is somewhat of a lost art. And so I, that resonated with me as someone who grew up reading voraciously and then feeling like I was getting busier and busier in my life and, and having the reading time cut out. Uh, that uh, That resonated right, and so I, I put I put that back at the top of my list of things to do and when i 'm mostly when I'm, i've got i 'm full of little kids still so when i 'm when i 'm uh, doing dishes at night or folding laundry that 's when I consume my books and sometimes they 're long sometimes they 're short, but I attribute my uh, say my renaissance in reading and interest in growing for myself uh, to that post on linkedin i don 't know if I ever told you that
2: oh, that 's cool no, you never told me, and definitely audible is considered reading for sure especially for people like me who i'm an auditory learner so i remember things way better when somebody speaks them to me when i hear something i remember it way better when i read it or even if i write it i'm an auditory learner so lots of people have different learning styles and so you got to figure out what works best for you some people have to read it physically right but yeah depending on what your learning style is or what you're capable of doing there's no wrong way to read
1: So let's switch topics to international team management and sales management. You've managed teams in London, Hong Kong, across America. Uh, Can you talk about how sales strategies have differed across these different areas of the world? Do you think that different cultures respond in different ways to different sales tactics? I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on that.
2: So on a general level, no, it's not different at all. But on on the minute level and then managing your internal team, there's huge differences that I've found. Because people in general, they just want to feel important. They want to feel like you're taking care of them, that you're honest, that you're meeting their needs, all those things, and how you show that though can change. And so in some areas, and even it's not just international only, it's even in different parts of of the United States, but in, in some areas, giving gifts is seen as bribery, whereas in other parts of the world, it's seen as something you have to do in order to just open the door. It's rude. So one example is in, in in Brazil especially, if you go visit someone for the first time and you don't bring something to them, that's kind of rude. And that's not just in business. That's in business too, but it's also in um, personal life too. If you go to somebody's house and you don't bring them something the first time you're ever visiting their house, it's rude. And it's the same in business. If you don't bring, if you're good visiting. So I worked for a company where I was um, had to do some work in Brazil and I would go down there and if you didn't bring like a box of something famous from America, like Hawaiian chocolates, if you're from Hawaii or something that represents, it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be, just has to be thought out. Then it was kind of seen as you were, oh, he doesn't really want to be here. He doesn't want to be my friend. And so in the Brazilian culture, it's it's important to be a friend first before you talk business, right? And then in other places, though, it's the exact opposite. So I've done business in Germany and that's the last thing you would ever do is bring a gift to someone in Germany as an opening. And so there's just little things that, yeah, that's, that's, that, that's a different process. But so then the, the sales tactic, I guess it's called a tactic because it's not really a strategy or a methodology, it's just something you do. And it's a way to get to a certain point of where you can have a conversation. So it's a conversation opener, right? And in different places, you have to do it differently. But the real differences in international business, I, what I've found is your internal team and how they respond to leaders and how they respond to leadership. So I've had teams where I had a team of people that was 10 or so people were based in Costa Rica and we were an American company. And the way they approached problems was it was very, very much, hey, we have to solve the problem before we're allowed to tell our boss about the problem. So let's solve the problem and then go tell our boss about the problem. They wanted to make sure they were seen as smart and seen as proactive and seen as doing a good job and not wanting to burden the boss. Whereas I've managed teams in other parts of the world where their first job is because they're so afraid to make a mistake, they do the opposite. They'll come to the boss first where they don't want to make a mistake. So they'll come to the boss first and say, hey, what should we do? And then they'll go do it and they'll do a great job once you tell them what to do. So there's the internal kind of culture is more, I think, has a bigger effect on how you sell often than the external culture.
0: Mario I, I'd like to dig deeper into into this topic but there's there's so much that I, i'd like to to cover that um, i'm I'm going to keep uh keep going but maybe perhaps later we can we can come back to to this uh, sure. this topic which which is fascinating i think uh, for me in particular having having had the opportunity to to, to live overseas and work with people across cultures, definitely there's, there's, um, very specific, uh, relevance to that, but I think just, just more broadly, right. It's, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating topic, but yeah. I'd like to, to focus on, on your industry and, and your work with, uh, move medical. You've told us uh, a little bit about what the, what the company does, but, uh, I'd like to, learn a little bit more about the the challenges that you're addressing, uh, with, with your products. I mean, I think we all, uh, or most of us can have a general understanding of what medical devices are and, and what they do. Um, but perhaps a few of us know the kinds of issues that, that might come up Mm -hmm. other, other than, than the obvious, right? Like something doesn't doesn't work um, right. but I'm sure that it's more complex than that so so please um, tell us about uh, the, the the big picture in terms of of what what issues uh, off uh, are, which are the, the the most common issues and how does your work how does your company how do your products help help address those
2: yeah so in the medical device space the the products are amazing they're incredible they're designed by really really smart people and they do their job really really well. The problem, though, in, in the industry, the biggest problem is getting the right product to the right place at the right time. And it seems like this should be an easy problem to solve because you have Walmart supply chain, you have Amazon supply chain, and they can solve things really, really easy. And McKinsey just came out with a study that, in the implantable medical device supply chain, maybe a couple of years ago, they came out with this study that there, there's over $5 billion in annual waste in the supply chain. That if they could solve these problems, it would, yeah, it would erase $5 million of waste. And that waste could be in over. Over time, it could be in an overage and shipping charges. It could be in throwing away expired inventory. There's lots of different areas, ways to count waste, right? But the example you can think about is if you're going to have a knee surgery, they're going to, let's say a new knee implant for somebody that blew out their knee and they need a brand new knee. They're going to bring in $100,000 worth of equipment, knees, implants, tools to cover that knee surgery. Only $5,000 of it is going to get implanted into the patient. You don't know which 5000 is going to get implanted though until the patient's cut open. To make that more complex, after the surgery is over, that $95,000 worth of stuff has to go somewhere else and it's not probably back to where it came from. And there's different ownership models where the hospital might own some of that inventory, a distributor might own some of that inventory. And so the inventory issues are pretty complex because there's lots of ownership models and there's lots of inventory that goes from place to place. And so lots of different companies have tried to solve this. They said, oh, let's use rental software from a car rental because it goes back and forth to different places. So we could do that. But the problem is when you return a, rent a car, you don't return it without the steering wheel. What are you going to do with a car that doesn't have a steering wheel? But you still have to use it for the next surgery, even if it doesn't have the steering wheel. And that doesn't work for, so rental car software doesn't work. And ERPs like SAP or Oracle, they weren't designed to do this. And so they've been corrupted or band-aid together to try to solve this problem, but it's never worked. Hmm. And so, at Move Medical. Our whole objective is to build software that solves this specific challenge.
0: That's pretty interesting, right? Uh, I, I think I'm not the only one who's experienced uh, the frustrations of having to use software that's not designed for for what you're doing. Um, I, I remember many, many years ago, I was working at a relatively small company and they uh invested in in pretty pretty sophisticated um client relationship management software that um simply didn't didn't fit our needs um it, it would have been perhaps uh, appropriate for 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 a larger corporation but but not for us and and I, and I remember you know in the end no one was using it right it was just you know more than half the fields were irrelevant fields that we needed. We're not there, so you, we we had to over rely on, on um, on notes. Y- y- you know, so so so. I, I can, I. Th- thanks for that explanation. I think that that you you really uh, did a great job there of, of explaining what the, uh, what what the issues are and how 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 you uh, combat those.
2: Yeah, using CRM in general is never fun or easy for anybody in any industry. But if it's not built for what you're doing, it's even it's 10 times worse. So, yeah, that's a good example.
0: <laughs> one one more while we're on this subject. Um, when I was working um, as a as a Foreign Service Officer, we, we had um, some, let's just say, uh, less than stellar software that we would use for for our um, for our work doing uh, with with Visa interviews and, and applications generally, and I remember going to to, to, to a training uh, session, and they, 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 I remember there was this little box, uh, and it said, "Well, if you encounter uh, fake documents or fraudulent documents, um, be sure, you know, be sure to check this box." And of course, then I went to uh, to China to uh, <laughs> to work as a consular officer there, and. Um, Pretty much all of the cases where where we denied uh, the the applicant involved uh, fraudulent documents. It was a very important part of the problem. It wasn't just some sort of peripheral uh, issue that that we were that we were facing. It was actually a, a, a fundamental problem. But it's it's I also I always think of, of that right when you think and and that, and of course the the bottom line is you have people who aren't doing the interviews who maybe go out and spend a, a week uh somewhere uh observing the process and then they go back and design the software. And of course if you're a consultant um asked by the State Department to come up with software for, for consular activities and they say, you know, choose an embassy or consulate and you you can go there for a week. Well chances are you're going to look for a place with good beaches and um, good weather, not necessarily the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 posts where, where, um, the real issues are, are coming up. Right. So, yeah. uh, warnings, uh, to those, uh, wanting to get software designed for their activities.
2: No, that's a great example. Yeah. So many, we could talk for days about 10 hundred points that you just mentioned in your story.
1: So Mario, let's talk about sales in general, you know, yeah. When we all reflect on it, we're all doing sales in every aspect of our business, right? Whether it's internal sales to try and get a promotion, to try and get a project through, to try and get help yeah. on a project we're doing, or externally to to customers and clients. Of course, a lot of times, uh, if we just focus on the sales, and t- the typical salesperson you know, is focused on Getting the sale completed right i mean i yeah. I've been in sales not as long as you have, but I've done a fair share of of sales businesses, and I have to say that I was mostly focused on selling and upselling and not on uh not on doing anything else right trying to fill my pocket, and make sure i could yeah. I could pay my bills. What do you have to say to address um know kind of and this gets into into what you covered in your book as well, so feel free to drop anything in you'd like. But what, is, what, what advice do you have for all of us who are really engaged in sales? You know, how should we think about ourselves and so we can look ourselves in the mirror every day? <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Especially, it's really, really hard if
2: you don't think the product you have or what you're trying to offer is going to help someone. So it becomes the opposite, though. Super, super easy to be in sales if you really believe what you're doing is going to help people. So if you're fighting for that promotion internally or you're trying to get an idea pushed across that's going to help your company and you're trying to get this initiative done, then it's actually usually pretty easy to sell it and get behind it because you believe in it. And that's the same in traditional sales too. If you believe in the product that it's going to actually help the person, that they're going to be better off for talking with you, then doing everything else becomes that much easier. But as far as sales itself, the reason people are, salespeople are considered slimy or selfish or sleazy, right? Is because salespeople in general are paid wrong. They're paid for transactions. And so the relationship becomes a transactional relationship. And because people get paid are do what they're paid to do most of the time. And so if they're paid to be a transactional salesperson, they're going to be a transactional salesperson. So if you don't, if you pay them for long-term results, then they would drive long-term results based on how they're paid. And so compensation is a big issue in the sales industry that makes people do things they probably wouldn't do to their mother or to their
0: sister if they weren't paid to do that. Mario, following up on this, um, one thing that I've always felt, and and, and I think that when it comes to, to, to sales, I've always felt there is a very strong connection between how your work as a, as a salesperson manifests itself and the, the product that you're that you're selling um, I, I i experienced this early on in my career when i worked in environments where there was a lot of, of pressure on, on on me and my colleagues to 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 sell yeah and um of course it's it's I remember thinking, at, 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 and, I, and I think there was something to be said about my own efforts and my own uh, expertise as it was developing. I was, you know, very young back then, but I do remember thinking uh, along the way many times, like, well, if I was selling something, something else, if I was selling something better, then then that would that would surely that would surely help. And and one one example that that I that I encounter of this. Um, I remember meeting uh, someone who worked for one of the large uh, aircraft uh, manufacturers uh, in charge of their China sales, and I thought, well, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I mean, if you're wor- if you're selling a product um, where you have essentially one competitor, <laughs> and, <laughs> and 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 even then, right? I mean, it's your, your product is still pretty pretty unique in some ways. Then, yeah, sure. I mean, um, you're you're going to do, you know, the product kind of sells itself, you know, so, so I guess, I guess that's really where where I'm going with this. I mean, there are products that, that sell themselves, but I I, I was wondering if you could, if you could, um, speak to this a a little bit, right. And perhaps, um, keeping in mind those members of the audience who, who might be, um, in a position where, where they, where they have to sell and maybe struggling with these issues. I mean, perhaps, um, Maybe some words of encouragement for for these folks to to help them understand that look, it, it, there are going to be um, uh, tasks uh, that that you face as a salesperson that that are going to be tough, right? Just because of what you're what you're selling, and it may not be a reflection of, of your own abilities and your own uh, drive.
2: Yeah. So in the sales world, there's pros and cons for every single product that you're going to be required to sell, and so. If the sale is a product where there's not much differentiation and there's lots of competitors out there and maybe your product isn't better than anybody else's, that almost always translates into it's an easy sale. It's a one call close or two call close where you don't have to invest tons of time to get one sale. Whereas the the airplane sale, that salesperson might get one sale every four years or five years. Mm. And so it's just a different environment. And so you, in in that regard, you just have to look at what type of environment do you work better in some people can't work in long sales cycles they don't have the patience or their their personality just doesn't fit right and other people they can't do the opposite they 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 have to have to be something that's very patient and slow or they get flustered and they can't work in that environment but the other side of it is usually it's the pressure or it could be positive or negative is often coming from your boss or the top down where they're pressuring you to sell and then you have to hit those numbers or you can't feed your family right And I think in that regard, it comes down to how do you look at the pressure and what is it doing to you? And then you can go back to your purpose and your why. And that's really hard in sales when, hey, I have to sell this deal or I'm not going to be able to feed my family next week. Right. So it's very hard to look at that and then do the right job. But I I always take it back to something in, in a sports environment when when a football coach says run harder, he's not telling you to run harder just so you get more tired he's actually telling you to run harder so you can either get to the ball first or you so you can make a block that you're supposed to make. There's a reason why you're pushing hard. It's to do something else. And so if you can put the as Stephen R. Covey talk, Stephen Covey talks about putting the end in mind, right, where you put the end first. And so if you know why you're doing what you're doing and why you're working so hard, it makes getting there a tad bit easier. And yeah, sales is really hard and often can be demoralizing. And what makes a good salesperson great is their resilience, their ability to overcome rejection or overcome the word no. And the reason, though, they have the ability to overcome that isn't just because they're resilient. It's because there's some foundation that's driving them beyond that. So people that are abil- have the ability to overcome no and say someday, eventually, I'm going to be able to help you, then they're the ones that usually do the best. And that's hard a hard mindset to get into. But if you can talk yourself into that mindset, that you're going to help people, then it becomes much easier to do your job and then to do everything else that just surrounds the job. Lots of those mundane tasks that maybe you don't like to do.
1: I think there's a metaphor for parenting in there, right? You and I both have a lot of kids and, you know, kids are the same because they want to ask you why right? And even when you think you've given them a great answer for why, right? You try you try to get them to the end and say, okay, this is why we're spending today helping, uh, like my kids, I took them to my sister's house and we helped her paint her, her house that she's renovating. I said, this is why we're spending our Saturday helping our sister paint the house rather than playing, that because there are certain things that are more important than playing all the time. And so I have to, you know, rather than when I'm being in a bad parent mode, then I will say, just because, just go do it. Okay. I don't, I don't, I don't need you to question me. I told you to paint that corner. Come back when it's done. Right. Rather than that, when I can, when I can step back and be patient and say, Look, do you remember why we're here? What are we What are we doing this for? Why does it matter? And let them figure it out on their own and go back and, and complete their task. I mean that that's powerful, um, you know, in all kinds of ways. But I'm very uh, very good at forgetting the easy easier. Uh, let's say it's the the less resistant road to to helping people figure it out why why we're here and what we're doing. So yeah, let's yeah. turn topics again. Well, I see that Mario. Up, but, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: No, yeah, there's a lot of similarities. I can see the connections for sure.
1: Um, so let's, uh, I'm curious about this. What are your thoughts? My, my, uh, I ask you this question because my brother-in-law's father has been in sales his whole life. He started out selling suits and then he moved to cars and now he sells houses. And he has consistently been the top performer wherever he has been a salesperson. And he is one of the most reserved, quiet-spoken, but also very i can tell he's a, a thoughtful person right he yeah. can you comment a little bit on the types of personalities you run into i mean if we're all if we all have to sell we have to find a way for all the different types of personalities to be comfortable selling right whether it's uh, internally whether it's across cultures for a lot of us right who are in the international space can you comment a little bit on on what it takes to find your looks um, like we all have different learning capabilities and learning methods. What's uh, what's the right way to think about how we should approach sales from diff- different personality styles?
2: So Dan Pink actually wrote a great book almost on this whole topic called To Sell is Human. And in it, he talks about that everybody thinks that extroverts should be the best salespeople. And that's what you think of mm-hmm. when TV shows or movies, you think of extroverts as salespeople. And the really, there's, a thir- there's extroverts and introverts, but the personality type that typically has the best results are ambiverts, but that's not actually a real personality type. It's a mix between extrovert and introvert. But what it means is that you can mimic the person that you're working with in order not to the point to manipulate them in a negative way, but to help them feel connected to you. So if you're calm and reserved but you need to pick up the enthusiasm just a little bit so the other person doesn't think you're not interested, then you can do that if you have to. Or if you're usually a little too excited, you can tone it down a little bit and so the other person doesn't get put off by your personality, right? And the ability to read a room and then adjust how you speak and how you present yourself is pretty important. But I wouldn't even say that's the most important. The most important, I think, is if if you actually wanna solve that person's problem And you take a thoughtful approach, whether you do it really fast or excitedly or you're very reserved how you do it, you can be thoughtful and excited or you can be thoughtful and very calm or you can be the opposite. You can be super slow and calm and not thinking about anything. You can just be daydreaming, right? So it just depends on the foundational approach that you're taking. And if you're thoughtful and care about the other person, that's the personality that usually wins.
0: Mario, in addition to being a, an avid reader, uh, as, as you have made clear, you're also you're also a writer. You have a new book coming out uh, titled, Really Care For Them, How Everyone Can Use the Power of Caring to Earn Trust, Grow Sales, and Increase Income No Matter What You Sell. Um, tell us about the book. And in addition to, to telling us about the, the subject matter, um, I don't I think bo- both um, both of us would would love to hear more about the the, the process. I mean, I, I I sometimes have fleeting dreams of uh of becoming a writer uh whether as a as a as something I do on the side or perhaps even you know joining the uh joining the ranks of the uh of the literati uh, but of course I have no idea what 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 actually goes into into writing a book. So I I'd, I'd like to know more about this um what, what what kind of time do you have to to put into it? Uh, how much of your time is actually spent writing as opposed to to researching and 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 getting the material that that you need? How, what about the the editing process and and also just from a from a business perspective, how how do you publish a book? Right, I mean, writing it is one thing, but how do you how do you get it out there?
2: Well, yeah, that's so. There's a lot of ways to go when writing a book and how you want to get it out there. And some people write the, have the whole idea planned. They write an outline and they, they write the book and then they submit it to publishers and try to get it published. They're self-publishing. There's lots of ways to get the book out there. Um, The way that my book came about was a little more kind of organic slash my wife told me to do it type deal where I was reading a lot. And then people would ask me, Hey, what's the best book I should be reading for this topic or this topic or this topic. So I started publishing an annual top 10 list of the top 10 books I read that year. So usually I'd read a little over a hundred books a year. And then I would say, Hey, these were the top 10 of the books that I read. Um, and then I, and I always took notes if something was important. So my phone was full, full of notes of anything important. So if I was listening on audible, I'd pause it if I was at the gym working out and then I would try to write down a few notes of what I just listened to just so I could go back to it later if I had to. Right. So I was always taking notes. And then because so many people were asking me, I started publishing kind of a daily blog. So for the last four years, I've published something every single day, four and a half years or so. And every single day is just basically, hey, what did I learn that day? And so I published what I learned that day, just one, maybe, maybe one sentence, maybe a whole paragraph. And then during COVID, I was at the point where, hey, I, I was reading a lot. But none of the people I would recommend books to actually ever read the books I recommended. Hmm. And I was like, you even have more time to read now that you're at home. How come nobody's – I would ask them, oh, you you asked me what book I should read because I have this problem in my sales career and I told you and how come you didn't read it? It was really kind of interesting. But the culture toward how we accept knowledge and how we learn has totally changed, right? Twitter – um, even on LinkedIn, you see that you, if you don't put spacing between each sentence on your LinkedIn post, it's not going to get read. If you write a full paragraph on, on a LinkedIn post, it's not going to get read. And Twitter or even YouTube videos, anything longer than 15 minutes almost doesn't get watched on YouTube now. So even the biggest YouTube stars, they're kind of cutting back on, on their content, making way more videos rather than making long videos. Um, and so I decided, you know, I have all this, these, this information that I've read that I've taken notes on. And I think it would be a good idea to share it in a way that's easy for people to understand and learn. And so I talked to my wife about it. And she's like, yeah, of course, you should have done that a few years ago. So why haven't you done it yet? So I, I got all my notes together. And so I've been taking notes now for eight, 10 years or whatever on sales stuff. So for me, it wasn't about the idea of writing a book. I was taking notes and then I just had to sift through the notes and put together what I thought hmm. were, I guess, the hundred most important lessons a salesperson should know. And that's kind of how I put the book together. And I wanted it to be in an easily readable format. So not too much content, not too much, too many paragraphs, a lots of, this is exactly what you need to know. And if you want to go study, it, you can go study it later on your own. You can go read this book, read this book and study it. But this is the principle that you should study and learn. And after that, you can figure out how to take a deeper study. So it's not very deep in a sense that each topic isn't covered deeply, but the principles I would consider true principles to, to being able to increase your ability to build trust with people. And how I went about publishing it was I submitted. So there's a few different ways to go about it. So some people go about and get an agent and then that agent submits proposals for them. And that agent kind of gets them a book deal and they do that. And that's the most traditional way. Another way is to submit your own manuscript to agents uh, or to publishing houses and then they would publish it and then you still then you have to do a ton of work and then there's what they call hybrid publishers where You write everything and pay a publishing company a bunch of money and then they get that book published for you but it's more You own the rights to the book rather than the publishing company and you paid them for all their work So then there's no skin off their game and then there's hybrid of hybrid where It's kind of like a joint effort where you don't have to pay them anything but you still have to do a lot of the work yourself And that's the route I took with Morgan James. They're a hybrid of a hybrid. So they're as close to a traditional publishing house as you can get without being traditional because I wanted to keep the copyright to my work. And so on the editing side, instead of them doing the editing, I had to hire my own editor to edit it for me and those kind of things. But they put together the cover. They put together the – they designed the interior Based on what I kind of told them how I wanted it designed, and they're getting it into the bookstores and those kind of things. And then I'm doing all the digital marketing online while they're getting it into the physical bookstore. So that's kind of the partnership I have with Morgan James.
1: That's fascinating. I'm like Fred. I suppose those of us who grew up reading a lot and think we might have something to contribute think that we'll have time to write at some point. Uh, I always guess I think after my kids get out of the house, but I keep having kids, so I don't know when I'm going to be able to do that. I guess I I either have to give up my exercise regime in the morning or just discipline myself to writing in in discrete chunks. When you were writing this or putting it together, how much time would you say you spent in aggregate and what would that break down to? And did you do it on the weekends? Did you do it in the mornings before work? How did you break up the actual work you needed to put into to do this?
2: Yeah, so... Since most of my research was done, that saved a lot of time. If I had to do all the research from the ground up, that probably would have taken a lot more time. But over a three-month window, I put an hour a day in the morning, an hour a day at night, and then maybe a couple hours on a Saturday, two or three hours on Saturday. And I did that for about three months to get everything the way I wanted it. And that was the initial sprint. And, but if I had to do the initial research, it would have taken probably a lot longer than that. But the research was already done mainly.
1: I published a well, what I would consider a book chapter on on acquiring a cannabis business for Thomson Reuters. Just oh, really? A, I think it was just last cool. month. Yeah. So, nice. and that was I think I think it was only twenty two pages by the time I finished, and uh, and it was a lot of work. The the writing initially was a lot of work. The and then the drafting and redrafting, coming back in versions was. Was exhausting too. And I thought, you know, maybe I'm not cut out for this author stuff because I, once I get my words on a page, I don't really want to think about this much anymore. And unless I have, you know, a month gap or something or two month gap to put into it. So we'll see. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, starting as a lot of people have said, starting is the first is the first thing, right? Get something down on paper like you you were doing take notes eventually you 'll feel like well i 've got time to do this, and I think it 's the way with any anything that we pursue now. I mean a lot of us are are middle aged some of our our listeners are are quite young are a, a lot we have quite a few law students who tune into this, and i I talk to law students a lot about. The process of becoming an international lawyer, what it took, how much work, how many how many turns and and U turns and uh, and corner turns I had to make to get to where I am now, and and even now trying to figure yeah. out day to day what's the best way to, to go forward, and and I think there is a lot of value, and I think i said this before, Fred, a lot of value just into putting in the work, you know, you work and you work and and in the work you find you find your way, and if you're if you're kind of hamps- hamstrung by uh, sitting on your chair and trying to figure out I don't wanna make any missteps. I think that that paralysis is really uh, is really what gets us when when we want to start doing anything
2: yeah no you' you're hundred so, percent right, Jonathan yeah.
1: Mar- Mario, I think Fred wanted to touch base uh, on the, that question we had talked about earlier. Fred, do you want to re, uh, re-engage with that? We're talking about, I think, the, the idea of working across cultures certainly is, is uh, very relevant in what we're doing, but I think we've got a little bit of time before we get to the last
0: question. Sure. So per, perhaps what what we can do. I mean, you you offered um, some some examples. You know, gifts, for example, the the, the differing attitudes to, to, towards uh, gifts. Uh, I always I always find the concrete examples are really really the best way to, or, or often the best way to to approach a, a topic. So, uh, uh, do you have uh, another or, or more than one example? um, that you can offer of, 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 things you, you noticed. And we can, we can sort of, um, we can sort of, uh, Build on that. I, I will. I will say one, one one thing. You know, when you were when you were talking about uh, the the way the way things worked with with Costa Rica, right? Uh, people want to solve the problem before they they take it to their boss. I was thinking, uh, I'm like, well, I hope God, I hope I hope we don't find ourselves um, with a with a lot of uh, applications uh, for for jobs by Costa Ricans because you know I can definitely see how how our our own leadership would would love to have. Employees like that that yeah. come to them with a with a ready made made solution, but but in all seriousness, having having spent a lot of time in in Asia, uh, I certainly worked with uh, many many supervisors, many bosses who would not appreciate that they would they would say no. I mean that's what that's the reason I'm here. You you come to me with you know don't you know, you come to me with a problem and I'll I'll, I'll take care of it right. So yeah. uh, definitely that, 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 uh, that attitude is out there, but perhaps, um, j- just to, to give some, some more color to, to this conversation, could you, um, could you give us some, some additional examples of, I mean, i
2: yeah, I always,
0: sure. uh, and, and one thing, you know, just, just one, one more thing. I, I uh, every once in a while, right. Whether it's uh, reading a magazine, especially these airline magazines, uh, you, you run across these little, um, you know, little, Summaries, you know, doing business in in Japan, you know, and they have like a few bullet points. I always find those fascinating, right? And and even though they they tend to be in some cases perhaps a little a little um, simplistic, uh, I think. Uh, still, there, there's something to, to be learned there, right? And uh, like you said, you know, you can always look into it a little bit deeper, and it may not be. It, there might be more nuance to it than than you find in you know in, in the three bullet points on the uh, Delta Airlines magazine. But it is a starting point, right? And there's usually some some truth to it. But um, but, but again, m- maybe we can we can talk about some other manifestations of these uh, differences uh, between cultures.
2: Yeah. So I worked for uh, a commodity trading company and I was based in London at the time. And I spent a lot of time in Israel um, for a project I was on. And this it was, was, was pretty profound for me when I realized this, that how you got to know someone in England, at least, and build trust in the company I was in. And I don't know if it's a British culture. The problem with stereotypes is they're usually true. The problem that I found, though, was I don't know if it was a British um, thing, because I spent, when I lived there, I spent so much time working. I didn't actually get to know anybody outside of my company, really. I was working sun up to sun down. I was in the office, and then everybody would have to go to the pub. And if you didn't go to the pub, afterward, you got fired, right? So it was, it was a different experience where I didn't get to know anybody outside of my office. But everybody at the office when I was in London, the only way to build trust, really, was to tell stories of how you were successful in previous work experiences. They didn't care about your life outside of work. And so you told stories, work stories. And and then at the bar after work, after it's 8 p.m. and everybody goes to the pub, you told more stories about work at the pub. Whereas in Israel, it was the exact opposite. They would be working the whole day together and not once would they talk about work the whole day. And they couldn't. And if you started talking about work, they would answer in one or two word sentences and then go back to something else and ask you questions about something else and they never wanted to hear about your work experiences and if you brought up work experience they are like, "ah, eh, that's kind of boring. Let's talk about something else." like and they're very abrupt about it. And for me, it was a it took me a few months to realize the difference going back and forth was like, "Wow, this to build trust with these people, I can't talk about work. To build trust with these people, I only can talk about work." And I'm not 100% sure if it was cultural or if it's just that environment, but I felt it was a cultural thing for me to to pick that up.
0: I once um was involved in a in a this was before I joined the the firm I was uh, working for for a large uh, multinational on a as, a as a consultant on a on a project um basically a worldwide project they you know the the it, it, the the project involved their manufacturing facilities so there was m- most of the locations were were in um in, in, emerging economies, right? So, yeah. so I didn't have the full, uh, breadth of, 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 uh, countries to, to compare, but something very similar to what you described happened. Um, a lot of the work we did was, was in Asia and, and even in irrespective of the country, uh, very often there would be a very strong, um, most of the people we were dealing with, even, even, across countries, a lot of the people we were dealing with were either Chinese or, or Taiwanese or from Hong Kong or Korean. There was, I would say probably 70, 80% of the people we were working with were, belonged to one of those nationalities. And it, in those cases, it was, it was really all, all about work. Right. And, and, um, we'd, we'd get in, uh, in the mornings and, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a bit of a slow starter in the mornings and, 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 You'd, I would sit down you know these in some of these countries it's impossible to get a good cup of coffee so you know you've got that deficit that caffeine deficit working you know I had that working against me and right away they would you know the, the, they just wanted to revisit what we were talking about the, the the day before very little I mean at lunch it's the same thing and and then uh, I had the opportunity to to travel to South America as, as part of that that project and it's it's 180. Uh, degree difference, and um, I, I would uh, find myself having these these great conversations with with uh, the people with whom we were dealing with um, about all sorts of things. You know, in 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 a, in a few days, I would get to know these people, their families. They would start telling me about you know the places, like oh, you know, next time you come, we can go here. You know, we'll we'll take you to see this. The second time I went, you know, it's all. we're already at that level where it's like, oh, you know, uh, give, give give me a hug, you know, good to see you again. That never happened in in um, in Asia. I mean, we would go to some of these places three, four times, and it was still all very, um, very uh, formal, right? So, so like you said, I mean, I, I think that you, one one has to be careful, right? I mean, we can't you can't uh, always generalize because there are exceptions, but there there is uh, something to. To, to stereotypes and it's always fascinating, right? To 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 delve into that. Um, not too long ago, Jonathan and I interviewed um, someone from the UK who had the opportunity to live in, in in Australia and the US, and I thought her her insight was fascinating, right? Describing she was contrasting the way it, uh, things are in in, in Australia um, as opposed to to the US and the UK, which. As, as I recall, she found to be relatively similar in some ways. Although again, they do have the, uh, the pop culture. I I've never, I've never worked in the UK. I, I was a student there, but I have worked with a lot of Brits and, and yeah, like, like the things that you are describing, uh, do resonate, right? It's a lot of, and, and the, when you, when you were, when you were talking about their, you know, have them regaling you with uh, their success stories at other, at other jobs. And, and I'm, I, 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 my, you know, I had that flashback and I'm like, yeah, I, I, that's right. All those stories I had to listen to about, you know, the glory days at the, uh, the crown courts in, in, uh, unnamed British city. Um, <laughs> but for, for sure, for sure. That's, um, uh, well, anyway, a topic that we could, we could, uh, continue talking about, uh, I think, um, we're probably, it, it's time to, to start wrapping up, but we don't want to let you go, of course, without, uh, asking for recommendations. I'm going to take the, uh, the Liberty of, uh, including your book in, in those, those recommendations. So, uh, you, 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 you can't take the easy way out and just recommend mm-hmm. your book. You're going to have to give us, uh, at least another recommendation.
2: Yeah. So, um, if if you're in like hardcore sales, a good book is called Sell Different. It actually doesn't get released till next month in September. It gets released actually this month in September, but I got an early copy and I really liked this by Lee Sales. And I really like that book. It's just basically how to differentiate yourself from um, other companies that you might be going against for the same customers. And I really like that one. But a book that I think is for everybody, no matter what your profession, Gay Hendricks wrote a couple of books that I really like. One was called The Big Leap, but he wrote Um, a book called Conscience, Conscious Luck. And it's basically, instead of thinking of luck as this abstract thing, it's something that you can create yourself by doing certain things. And while it's a little out there, kind of in some ways, I thought it's, it's really can bring the idea of, of choosing how you respond to certain situations, like Man's Search for Meeting by Viktor Frankl, to a more modern day approach to it and a more kind of easier way to understand rather than having to read. A complex chapter book, it's 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 more uh, it's 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 more accessible. And so, "Conscious Luck" by Gay Hendricks is a book that I think lots of people could benefit from.
0: I know a lot of people don't like the character, but I remember in Titanic, um, I forget the name of the character. I don't even remember the author's the the actress name at the at the moment. But he was Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, rival for the affection of of. Um, yeah, I, I'm blanking out on all the all the <laughs> names of the actors, but I remember there was a scene um, where I, I think um, this is when the, everybody was boarding the lifeboats, and then I think he bought his way onto a onto a lifeboat, and you know he said something to the effect of uh, "I make my own luck," right? So it does it does remind me of that, and I know I know that in the movie that was supposed to be a a bad thing, and, yeah. and well, ultimately things don't work out for him, but but I always. I, for me that 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 phrase stuck with me and i do think that no doubt i mean they're very often right uh in you know to, to kind of uh moving away from from pop culture but i do think um and i don't know if this is the sort of the sort of thing that the the book addresses but i do think we putting it at a you know uh, looking at it at a, at a personal level right uh, i've had conversations with friends and I'm I'm sure we've all had right you 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 talk to to your friend and and it, or or you know it's it might be me saying this or it might be my friend saying it but you often hear that like well it's i just had really bad luck um and then often when you start breaking it down it's like well how much of it was really bad luck and how much was it that you just didn't prepare right i mean um you know how many times was you know bad luck when you took an exam really a reflection of not having studied enough, not yeah. having prepared enough right not um you know not having you know speaking of cultural differences um I remember I have a a few German friends um and one of them one time made this very categoric statement he said there's never an excuse to be late.' And of course, you know um one of my friends you know was of course trying to prove no no, no, no that's that's you can't say that because you, you there there are always going to be occasions when you can't control things, but um this guy just kept coming back like no, you just you know you just plan ahead, and finally um my my friend said, "Well, tell you what what if you're on your way to work and you run a, you know you run into a friend of yours that you haven't seen in twenty years um and, and, you know, you just talk to the guy and you're, you, you know, for 10 minutes, five minutes, and that just makes you be late. And then this guy said, well, that's why we Germans always plan for this. And we leave earlier than we need to. So that if we run into a, if we run into an old friend, we'll, we'll, we'll have time. Right. So again, I, I, I certainly don't abide by that, uh, by that philosophy, but it, there, there is some truth, right. In, 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 in the, uh, in the fact that, uh, or in the assertion that you can, there's a lot you can do to, to yeah, make, yeah. uh, to make your own luck. Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good story. Yeah. And I think in general, and, and for most people, you know, lot, there's always going to be extenuating circumstances. Like if there's a drunk driver who runs a red light and hits you, it wasn't your fault and you couldn't plan for a drunk driver hitting you, even if you left two hours early for an interview, right? Like there's some right. things that you can't plan for, or if you're a woman in Afghanistan right now, it's going to be kind of hard. It's not your fault that you did anything wrong there. Right. But overall, in general, if it's something in your control, you can create your own luck. If it's out of your control, then you can't create your own luck, then there's no reason to worry about it. But yeah, so that's kind of how it works.
0: Jonathan, uh, what, what, what about you? I, I actually, I must, uh, I must admit, I, I, I was curious, uh, as we were getting ready for, for, the, uh, for the podcast, I saw your, 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 um, your recommendation, I copy pasted uh, and and took a quick look at it. it. Looks looks really good, but um, but let me give you the uh, the chance to uh, to describe your your recommendation.
1: Yeah, so this is a, a kind of a longer article written by a Stanford Business Professor named Joel Peterson. He titled this "My Road to Cancellation." Uh, it's an article in the Deseret News, and I like this article because it is part of the greater conversation that we're having right now, especially in the United States about what happens when you run into someone who you consider their viewpoints completely intolerable. Right. And so my, as I've discussed, uh, I think multiple times with you, Fred, certainly on the podcast, I have a hard time with discord, right? Not the, not the app, but, the uh, discord in, in anywhere I am. Right. It just doesn't sit well with me. And so, I'm, I'm the person who, if my friends are fighting, I want to mediate between them, right? And pr- that's probably why I became a business lawyer, is because this is where I feel comfortable, right? In deal- people bring me their issues, and I try to help them figure it out. And often we have acrimony on both sides of what we're doing. And so I have a I have a hard time with, um, you know, there are people who are going to have reprehensible viewpoints, right? That are just plain out crazy or wrong uh, or factually inaccurate. And uh, but even if they want to do that, right, I mean, I think our First Amendment is is the First Amendment because it's it's really important. Right. And and the fact that if we decide that we want to shut down everyone who has an unpopular opinion, then, um, you know, that that's the start of of what some assert to be a totalitarian regime. Right. And we don't want to be on either side of that. I don't care if you're left or right. I don't care what your politics are, that having having your own viewpoints challenged is a healthy place to be. And, and if you think that it's better to have everyone canceled who disagrees with you, then, then I don't necessarily agree with that. I'm not going to say you should be canceled, but I'm going to say, you know, let, let's have some introspection. Let's, let's talk a little more about why you have this viewpoint. Explain to me where your justification is and, and let your, you know, your viewpoint should be able to stand on its own two feet, right? That you should, if it is the best viewpoint, then everyone else should be able to recognize it. We have to kind of agree with everyone's ability to rationally understand what the world going on around them. And I know it's hard, you know, the the world's so big and complicated now, but that's where I fit in. And a lot of times that's why I haven't taken, uh, I haven't taken a stance on a lot of things at this point in my life, because A, uh, I don't like going into the fray. And B, uh, I may not want to spend the time. I, I may, this is my exercise time I'm giving up, right? And we, we put in long days as lawyers. At the end of the day, do I want to delve into this social issue? Do I want to exercise? And really, the exercise and the endorphins I get from that is probably going to help me deal with the stress of my life and, and the stress of the world better than, than weighing in and, and reading someone else's opinion for two hours but i've still forced myself to do that right i still force myself to read articles from what i would consider very far right very far left because for me i want to understand where everyone's coming from because uh, i may have to mediate in between them at some point and i want to make sure that i understand in a fair way where everyone's coming from so that's why i picked that article and it's uh, a little bit of my own my own middle of the road politics for you fred and what's your recommendation fred <laughs>
0: So, my recommendation is, and it's a very emphatic one. I just finished watching Netflix's um, series on on 9-11 and the War on Terror uh, called Turning Point, 9-11 and the War on Terror. Uh, It is, it is, um, it's fantastic. Um, I breezed through it. Uh, one of the interesting things was watching the the first couple of episodes that that really focus on the events of, of September 11th, and obviously this is um, it was nothing new in the in the sense that that I you know I'm, I'm old enough to to, to, to clearly remember um, what what happened that day, but there was there was it was still. Um, uh, the impact of of the images and 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 the way they were put together they just they managed is they just really managed to to um present things in a way that 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 even for for an event like this right that it's 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 been has been present in our in our lives for the last twenty years they still managed to to tease out some some emotional responses and it was Useful for me, uh, or mm-hmm. I should say, it was interesting. Uh, I was watching with with my wife, who who's you know she's 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 from Taiwan. She and and uh, younger, so um, th- has different uh per- perspectives, right? And and obviously this, I mean, this was a big deal worldwide, but obviously it was different uh in in, in Asia. So it was it was interesting to. Um, to, to talk through things and explain what it was like. I mean, I, and I, and I found myself remembering a lot of, a lot of the emotions that, 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 um, that were felt that day, like, you know, and, 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 just because what they do is they do this basically this minute by minute retelling of what happened on September 11th. And I, re, I, I remember, I, 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 I remember how that went, you know, and, and, and I, I mean, I'm not, not to, not to, um, not to, to get, uh, Sidetracked here, but um, I, you, you you might remember when when the first plane hit, uh, it wasn't clear that it was a, a terrorist attack. There were people thought well, maybe it's just some accident, some some guy in a in a small plane that 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 hit the, the tower, and they actually show uh, you know that that's how it was presented to President Bush. You know that was you know they and they 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 have a picture of of, of them when they found out, but at that point they, they they were like everyone else they just didn't know the magnitude of, of what happened and then of course later they, they 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 were told and i remember yeah that was exactly how it went when when we heard of that second attack that's when everybody thought wait a minute this is this is this is something a lot more sinister here so absolutely um fantastic uh, uh you know you know it's it's, it's obviously it, it's not an easy watch and and of course there's a lot of content on on afghanistan and that's that's very tough too. I mean, it's, it's um, ultimately a bit of a sad story all around, right? Because it's, it's, um, you know, the, the, the timing of it is, 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 um, is, um, it makes it, it makes for, 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 uh, for a tough watch. But, uh, again, turning point nine eleven on the war on terror, fantastic. Uh, great job by, by Netflix. So with that, um, Thank you, Mario, for your recommendations. Uh, thanks, Jonathan, for your recommendations. And thank you for, for coming on the podcast. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank
2: you. It was, it was great to talk with you guys. Great conversation. Thank you.
1: Global Law & Business is a production of Harris Bricken. The team includes Madeline Williams and Michaela Moore. The music is composed by Steven Schmidt. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review there. We like to hear what you think of the show, and it helps new listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.